Well, good morning, and I want to add my voice to that which has already been extended and welcome. We are delighted that you are here. We do not think it is an accident that you are here. We believe that our God is the greatest communicator in the cosmos, and he has something for each and every one of us this morning. So I invite you to set aside any distraction, to set aside anything that is vying for your mind's attention, your heart's affection, and that you would simply invite the Lord God himself to communicate by his spirit, through his word, to us, his people. My name's Eric, and I get to pastor here, and I want to let you know of a, a fun little encounter that a really good friend of ours had a number of years ago. It's a young mother, and she had waited probably longer than she should have to have the talk. I'm putting air quotes very definitively. She waited a long time to have the talk with her daughter. And so she tried to just put it off and was awkward and was strange. And so waited until her daughter was in junior high and decided now it's time to have the talk about all sorts of things that a woman just needs to know. And our friend had had her own sort of trajectory of, of pain and turmoil and trauma, and so she'd sort of dreaded it, and so she just poured her heart out and told her everything there was to be told by a, a woman to her daughter, and had gotten emotional and was, was tearful and was passionate and was very transparent, was very truthful, and just left nothing to the imagination, just told her daughter everything and just was wrung out like a washcloth. She got to the end, and there's tears streaming down her eyes, her mascara's running, and she looked at her daughter and said, do you, do you have any questions? Is there anything that you still want to know about? And the daughter paused, and she said, yeah, you know, I still don't get fractions. <laughs> and that always stuck with me, like, oh, yeah, that's how Jesus must have felt as he's dealing with his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, we have been studying the Gospel of Mark this entire spring semester. And we've been saying that Mark, with Peter's help, sitting in Rome, is trying to write to a Roman people from a Roman readership to give them a pragmatic understanding of who this Jesus is. Who is really king? Who is really the Lord of lords? How does life actually work? How does it actually come to fruition and flourish? Now, we've made it through seven chapters. We are in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. Now, you might notice that the Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. And so, yes, just very importantly, the Gospel of Mark is broken up very nicely and neatly. And this morning, we come to the great peak, to the centrality of the Gospel of Mark. It's uh, sort of the continental divide, you might say. We've been pushing for seven chapters. This morning at the end of chapter eight, we reach a high point summit. It's the divide. And then for the rest of our time together in the gospel of Mark, it'll be driving toward the conclusion. So the first eight chapters essentially are asking and answering the question, who is this Jesus? The last half of Mark's gospel is what must he do? Who is Christ? What does he do? We're going to sort of summarize and land on the conclusion of this who is Jesus as we get to the end of chapter 8. And right here in the peak, in the summit, in the pinnacle of the continental divide, we are introduced to something unexpected. Mark serves us up a leaven sandwich. Ugh, it doesn't sound very good and it's not supposed to be. You might remember that Mark loves to write his gospel in sandwich form. There's usually a thing and a thing, but the stuff in the middle, that's kind of the point. 
So this morning we are in the Gospel of Mark. If you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to chapter 8. There's a whole lot of things that are misunderstood about this Jesus, but it prepares us for our big idea this morning that goes very simply, but very poignantly and powerfully like this. Jesus is the Christ. Now, I can just about promise you, every single one of us in this room, whether you're in the third floor, the second floor, the first floor, or watching remotely, we don't grasp the enormity, the grandeur, and the glory of that statement. Jesus is the Christ. It's not his last name. Now, we've been saying all semester, the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. It's not about trying harder to be better. It is staring intently at Jesus, spending time with him, gazing at his glory. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. And what we've learned again and again is that the king has come and his kingdom is here, but it's not what anybody expected. So we have in Mark chapter 8 now, at long last, the last couple Sundays, quite transparently, have been, oh, how shall a preacher put this? Lengthy. But I want to remind you that the gospel of Mark is really written so that you as the hearer or the reader or the listener will get it all in one full swoop. And I would love to take a full weekend where it's just a lock-in, where we have nothing but snacks and scripture for like 48 hours, but I know I would be very lonely in this place. And so you have to understand that chapter six, the longest day comes, and then chapter seven is a super lengthy chapter, and now I'm into chapter eight, and they all sort of fit together, and you have to know that. So in chapter eight, verse one, it says, in those days, well, you have to understand what's going on in those days. In chapter seven, Jesus has had a confrontation with the Pharisees, and they accused his disciples of being ceremonially and ritually defiled. They are unclean, and Jesus goes, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. Everybody's already defiled from the inside. And then Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip, and they go to modern Lebanon, to Tyre and Sidon, where Jesus encounters a Syrophoenician woman with a demon-possessed daughter, a Gentile, a woman, probably a widow or a divorcee, like the worst possible encounter. And he tells her this little living parable that what I have come to offer is for the children, not the dogs. And she says, ah, but the dogs eat from the scraps that the children drop. And Jesus says, you get it. And he looks at his disciples and they're scratching their ears and they don't get it. And so then they go back all the way around to the Decapolis, the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus encounters a deaf, mute guy. And Jesus puts his fingers in the guy's ears and then touches his tongue. He goes inside this guy, and he is able to hear. He's able to speak. In those days, Mark says, you have to have all of that as a backdrop, chapter 8, verse 1. When again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him. And he says to them, so he's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, the Decapolis, the 10 cities that were started by the Greeks. By the time of the Roman Empire, there are 18 cities. This is almost exclusively Gentiles or Jews that were in very stark disobedience. There's pigs, there's pork, there's all sorts of idolatry, adultery, and bloodshed. The three things that a Jew would try to avoid at all costs. This is a very, very pagan, Gentile kind of place. And Jesus has been there teaching, and there's crowds gathered around him. And you get the impression the disciples are kind of going, all right, okay, and, well, enough of this. Can we please go back where there's, you know, not pigs and stuff, please? Watch what happens. Jesus calls his disciples and says to them, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Because they have been with me now 
three days and they have nothing to eat. Now, you might remember a couple Sundays ago, we were in Mark chapter 6, and Jesus feeds 5,000 males on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Plus, women and children, there's probably fifteen to 20,000 people there. And in that setting, they are in an Israel context with mostly Jews. And what Jesus says there is, I have compassion on them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. They wanted to make him king there and then, right then. They see what he can do, and they're wanting to make him their leader right there. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to settle for that. I have compassion on them because they're sheep without a shepherd. But here, this is a Gentile context. I have compassion on them for their physical, material needs. They've been with me for three days. Now, what does that mean? Is that Jesus literally taught for 72 hours straight, never let anybody sleep, never let anybody eat or drink or go to the bathroom? No. It just means they brought a snack. They came to hear this guy teach. And it was so fulfilling. They just stayed. And of course, they would sleep. But they came from far away. And there were no villages around. So they probably just camped out or they went to the closest proximity of village and they slept in the city square and they would come back. And before long, they had completely run out of food and sustenance. And Jesus feels this. Now, I'm not saying that the application here is if you just study your Bible, you'll never have to eat again. I'm not saying that. If you never eat again, you're going to die. So don't misapply this passage. You have to drink water. But what I am saying is the things of this world grow strangely dim when we are immersed in the nourishment that our Savior and Lord provides. They just weren't thinking about it all that much. Jesus seems to care more about their problem than they do. That's instructive. That's really interesting. And if I send them away, verse 3, hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, don't look, don't look, don't look. This was just a couple of weeks ago in their real-time world. It's only two weeks ago in our preaching of it. It's two chapters away that Jesus feeds 5,000 males plus probably 15 to 20 more thousand other people. Now, you'd think they go, oh, we've seen this before. We know how this goes. He's just going to like do the thing and everyone's going to get fed, right? Of course, they've seen this. It's repetition. Okay, Jesus, get on with it. No, they don't get fractions. It's an amazing thing. Watch what happens. It's amazing. Verse 4, And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? There's nothing good here. These people are Gentiles. They're pagans. They're not with us. This kingdom that you have brought, it's not for them. We can't feed them. There's nothing here. There's no villages around. There is no bread. And Jesus asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Ooh, this time they have snacks of their own. No little boy this time providing five loaves and two fish. They just so happened to have seven loaves. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He, in an orderly fashion, administrates them to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, a couple weeks ago we talked about the typical Jewish prayer of the blessing of bread. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. People in Israel have been saying that prayer for 3,000 years, 3,500 years. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the ground. And then again, Jesus does precisely that. Having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to eat before the people, and they set them before the crowd. So 
this Jesus gives the bread to his Jewish disciples who then distributes and disperses all this food to this primarily, predominantly Gentile crowd. And they had a few small fish, really just, this is a strange little term, scrappy sardines. They're not even like fully formed sardines. It's like scrap sardines, which just sounds delicious, no? Ugh. They had a few small scrappy sardines. And having blessed them, the fish as well, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. What's going on? A couple chapters ago, Jesus feeds 5,000 males plus all of their families, maybe as many as 15 to 20,000 people, and there's 12 baskets left over. Any ear from Israel would hear that and go, ah, the 12 tribes. There is plenty to sustain, to feed and to nourish all of Israel. But now, here in the Decapolis, in the Gentile region, we have seven basketfuls left over. What's going on here? Well, it's called the Decapolis, but in antiquity, all Israel knew that that side of the Galilee was called the Seven Nations. Going all the way back into the book of Joshua, when the conquest begins, Joshua would always talk about the Seven Nations. You had the Canaanites, you had the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, you had the Girgashites, you had the Mosquito Bites, and the Neon Lights. And they were all in there together, this whole Gentile, and no, it's not really what they were called. There was the Amorites as well. But everybody in Israel knew that's the Seven Nations, the, the Gentiles, the dogs who were over there, who practiced idolatry and adultery and bloodshed. And Jesus says, I want you to get this. Seven baskets left over for the seven nations. But there's so much more than that. This is a living parable for the disciples. Just a few days earlier, they have found themselves in modern Lebanon and Tyre and Sidon with this Syrophoenician woman. And she says, I need you, Jesus. I get it. You're the one. You're the king. You've brought your kingdom. And Jesus, rather parabolically, says, it's not for the dogs. It's for the children. And she says, ah, but the dogs eat the scraps. And then just a few days later, Jesus is showing, do you see how much scraps I have? There's plenty. Yes, to the Jew first, Romans 1.16, but I have come to let all these scraps to fully satiate and satisfy, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well. 12 baskets for the Jews, seven baskets for the Gentiles. I have come to bring this kingdom, not merely for Israel. Do you guys not get it? Do you guys understand? And they go, so the denominator's on top? Is it like, wait, wait, how do you? They don't get it. They still don't understand. Seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away. Now it's time for you all to return. And immediately he got into the boat, Jesus did, with his disciples. And he went to the district of Dalmanutha. We don't exactly know where Dalmanutha is. You might have a footnote in your Bible. More than likely, it's Magdala on the northwest corner. Magdala, where the lady, Mary Magdalene, was from Magdala. It's probably where they're trying to sail to. Now, we've had the story of the feeding of the 5,000. Now we had a story of the feeding of the 4,000. But I want you to remember, this is written by Mark with Peter's dictation and Peter's uh, instruction. This is in the dead center of the action movie section of the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't want you to, to read this like it's just black letters on a white page left to right. He doesn't want you to hear this like a cynic. Well, they said there was 4,000. I bet it was more like 2,000. Who cares? 
is 4,000 and probably then some. He doesn't want you to say, well, I, I think the disciples were probably sneaking in some bread. They probably had 4,000 plus extra loaves tucked under their tunics. It's not how Mark wants you to read it. Mark's going to tell us in chapters 9 and 10 how he wants you to understand these stories. <laughs> it's, like a, it's like a junior high boy who comes back from camp. And he's telling the story. He's like, Mom, Dad, you're not going to believe this. It's the coolest thing ever. There we were. And I mean, I'm like covered in bacon because, you know, we're Gentiles, Mom and Dad. And I mean, it's really awesome. And like this guy was like coming and he's like teaching. And I didn't know anything about him because he's like a Jew. And they're like over there. But here he was. And I'd heard all these stories about like this dude who was like deaf. And Jesus like goes, ugh. It was so gross. But he touched his tongue probably with the same fingers. Gross, gross. And then, and then like the guy could hear and the guy could talk. And so we just hung out with this guy. And this guy was like talking and I never heard anything like this and he's talking about the kingdom and he's talking about life everlasting and I just couldn't get it up and so dude mom we just slept under the stars mom I was like go to the bathroom behind the trees it was awesome there was no place else to go mom I said well but then I started getting hungry and I know you said pack a sandwich I know you did and you said what are you gonna do just have sandwiches appear out of thin air well guess what mom yes out of thin air, he just produced sandwiches, and it was so awesome. And then he said, and he just like prayed, and then, and then like there was his bread, and then there was fish, and, and, and then he looked at me. I've never been looked at like that. And mom, dad, first time ever, I was like alive, I was like full. <laughs> the greatest three days of my life. And then he sent us away. So I'm here to tell you about it. Could you believe it? That kid got it. Jesus gets in the boat and they sail across the water to the northwestern shore. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Oh, that's an awesome transition. So that amazing thing has happened on the eastern shore. Now he's on the northwest corner, and the Pharisees have made their way north from Jerusalem, probably the same ones that were also in Capernaum on the northeastern shore, and they come to begin to argue with him, seeking. Oh, by the way, seeking in Mark's gospel is never a good, never a good verb. I know we try to be seeker-sensitive. Mark's not. Seeking always has the connotation of going after something with less than noble uh, in, uh, motivations or incentives. You're trying to do something yourself to get something for yourself. So they're just seeking. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They're wanting to be proven right and what they are saying about him. So they come and they're seeking to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Hey, Jesus, we want you to do the winky, winky, thingy, thingy. And Jesus is going, why would I possibly take this test that I know I can't pass? Remember, just a few chapters earlier in chapter 3, he's in Capernaum. These same Pharisees come and they see all the signs and wonders that he's doing and they say, you're doing black magic. You're possessed by Bilzebul. This is Satan's work. And Jesus is going, really? You, you saw the stuff that I was doing. You're just trying to trap me. And they're saying, we want to know that this is a sign from heaven. And if you won't do what we want you to do for us, then we will be justified in what we are saying about you, that you are not the Christ. You're just a dude, a special dude, but just a dude. And Jesus says, I will not take this bait. I will not take this test. It's very much like trying to prove to someone 
that the grass is green, but they refuse to open their eyes and they refuse to take their hands down. Prove to me the grass is green. Prove it. And you go, well, it's like grass, which is typically a verdant shade and it's got chlorophyll. I can't see it. I can't see it. Well, it's green and it's like leaves and it's like trees and it's green. Ah, see, you're not who you say you are because I can't see it. Therefore, it must not be true. You and I know people like this. Perhaps you are like this. You want to be proven, but you're not looking. Signs do no good to people unless they also already have sight. And Jesus responds rather abruptly, rather harshly. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation, he doesn't mean that particular age, it means the main course of life and culture of that day. Why does this generation seek a sign? Because Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Greeks seek wisdom, ah, but Jews want a sign. They want to be vindicated and justified. Truly I say to you, only two times in Mark's gospel does Jesus respond that harshly. Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Although he's just done some signs. He's saying to that manner of thinking. Now the gospel of Matthew adds detail and says, no sign will be given to you except that of Jonah. It's already been given to you, foreshadowing his death, burial, and resurrection after three days. And he left them. Jesus looks at these Pharisees and he says very, very specifically, no signs for you, no signs for you. And he just gets in the boat and he sails away. And he left them, got into the boat again and went to the other side. So Jesus just keeps crisscrossing the lake to do this ministry tour that he's on. He's over on the east. Now he goes over the northwest corner. He says, no signs for you. Nobody watches Seinfeld anymore. Come on, that's an obvious, obvious reference. No signs for you. Anyway, moving on. He gets in the boat. He goes over now back towards the east side of the lake. Verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, the disciples. <laughs> the, the disciples. You got to love these dudes. Because it's me. It's you. It's us. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. You get the idea. There they are in Magdala. Magdala is a pretty advanced town. It's a, it's a port town. It's a Roman garrison was stationed there as well. A fishing port. And nobody remembers to get bread this time while they're in dock. And Thaddeus, it's always Thaddeus. That guy always forgets to get the bread, man. They just happen to already have just one loaf of bread in the boat. And I'm sure it was springtime fresh. Ew. One loaf of bread is already in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. <laughs> Disciples are going, yeah, I was just thinking that. What now? And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Oy vey! Like you can just see the vein in his forehead pop out. Like, are you kidding me? You guys, you guys, you don't get it. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? That's not a rhetorical question. That's a direct reference to Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. In Jeremiah 5, 21, Jeremiah the prophet says to Israel, do you not understand? Do you not see? Do you not hear? Are your hearts so hardened? You don't even have a clue to look around and see the pain, the suffering, the desperation of the people and the context in which you live. And because you don't care, I'm taking you out of the land. You're going into exile. And Jesus is looking at his disciples and going, you don't get it. 
You want me to overthrow the Romans? Do you not see what I did for your own countrymen on the hillside when I fed 5,000? Do you not see what I did over there for 4,000 Gentiles and their families? Do you not see it? You don't understand what this is about? They don't get it. Jesus is trying to set up and remind them that Jesus is the Christ. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they all go, 12. Right, you can just see them somehow. Okay, I know this answer, but I don't know what this is about. Right, Jesus is good. And the seven and, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they all said to him, seven. Notice there's, there's, no, there's no like lengthy response. Seven. Like they're totally busted. They know this. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Chirp, chirp. Tumbleweed, tumbleweed. They don't get it. They don't get it. And we're supposed to read this and go, do I get it? Do I understand? Do I rec- recognize what's happening here? Well, just to drive the point home even further. Verse 22, and they came to Bethsaida. Bethsaida is on the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee to the east side of the Jordan River. They come to Bethsaida and some people brought to Jesus a blind man and begged him to touch him. Like he doesn't even like get to the dry land. There's already a crowd. They see him on the water like, go, 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 go. And they find this blind guy. They take him to the shore and they go, would you please touch him? They seem to get that this Jesus is their only hope. This blind guy goes along. He seems to understand that Jesus is his only hope. So Jesus is going to do another living parable. They begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So this is going to be a private living parable for the disciples. Now Mark is the only gospel writer that records this sign. He's the only one. And it's confounded people for centuries, and it need not. It's really fascinating. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? Now, more than likely, this means Jesus spits on his hands, rubs them together, and puts his hands on the dude's eyes. COVID! COVID! It's okay. This is, this, is, this is Jesus. He makes things clean. It's all right. He puts his hands on the guy's eyes and goes, do you see anything? And he's looking at his disciples. Huh? Watch what happens. He asked him, do you see anything? Verse 24, and he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. I can sort of see something, but it's not clear to me. Ah, so you are seeing, but not seeing. Now, is this because the guy was just so super blind, Jesus had to really lift with his legs and really dig deep with the spit? No, of course not. It's an object lesson to show the disciples what it is to see, but not really see. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Just go straight home. I don't want a commotion. This guy is seeing in part. He doesn't have clarity. You guys are seeing in part, Jesus is telling his disciples, you've been with me. You've seen some stuff, but it's like trees walking around. You still don't get it. See, Jesus is the Christ. Well, they're in Bethsaida. They're on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, probably just to the east of the Jordan River. And we're going to have yet another scenery change. Continuing on, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this is, this is a shock to our city. It should be. 
Bethsaida is on the northeastern corner of the Sea of Galilee. Caesarea Philippi is way, way, way up in the north. It's several days' walk to get up there. It's in the very north of the country, right on the border of what is today modern Syria and Lebanon. It's on the slopes of Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon. There's actually snow on Mount Hermon. You can ski on Mount Hermon. And from that vantage point, you can stand in the north, up on the elevated slopes, the Golan Heights, where Mount Hermon comes in. You can stand there, and you can see the Jordan River Valley on a clear day all the way down to the Dead Sea. You can see the whole land, the cradle of God's covenant context, where the pure waters from Mount Hermon, they go through, and then they flow through the village of Adam, and they begin to become polluted and defiled in the waters of the Jordan until finally they end up in the Dead Sea where there is no life. And Jesus walks his disciples all the way up to Caesarea Philippi. This is a place where good little Jewish boys do not go. It is probably the lewdest place within walking distance of Jerusalem. This is the center for Pan worship. Pan is the goat god. You know the little goat god with the little flute? And let me just spare the details, but they would practice all sorts of disgusting rituals with goats to try to excite Pan, the goat god. There's this headwaters of the Jordan River that comes out of Mount Hermon. There's this giant grotto cave that they said was the entrance to the mouth of Hades. So in Matthew's gospel, it's very significant that Jesus uses that as an object lesson, but he marches his disciples all the way up north, looking back over the Jordan River Valley of all of Israel. And on the way to Caesarea Philippi, watch what happens. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? They give him the standard answers, and they said to him, some say John the Baptist, come back to life because you're kind of awesome. You do some pretty cool stuff. John did some pretty cool stuff. So some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, the greatest of the prophets in terms of signs and wonders. You remember 1 Kings 19, he slaughters all the prophets of Asherah and Baal and the fire of God falls. Some people say you're him, another one of the prophets. And then they go on and they say, well, and so others just say you're just one of the prophets. In all three of those cases, Jesus is just another man, a special man, but a man nonetheless. John the Baptist, a man who died. Elijah, a man who didn't exactly die, but he's taken up. Another prophet, they all die. All the word on the street is saying, you're just a guy. You're just a guy. And Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? Now, this is in the plural. Who do y'all disciples say that I am? Peter steps up. This time, he nails it. You are the Christ. Now, Matthew tells us that Jesus goes on to say, blessed are you, Peter, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not give you this. This comes from my father who is spirit. In other words, well done, Pete. You didn't figure this out on your own. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer. God had to give you that information. Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, we don't have a category for how immense and awesome that is. In all of the Old Testament, The term in Greek is Christ. In the Old Testament, it is Mashiach. It just means the anointed one, literally the, the slathered with oil one. Various people are anointed or slathered at various times in the Old Testament. Sometimes a prophet would be anointed for his duty. Samuel was anointed with oil. 
Sometimes a king would be anointed with oil for his duty as king. David gets anointed. Sometimes a priest would get anointed with oil. Aaron gets anointed with the, with the anointing oil. But nobody ever, ever gets anointed as prophet and priest and king. Not even Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a priest. Melchizedek is a king. He's not a prophet. Moses is a prophet. Moses is a priest. He's not a king. Nobody gets to bear the triple crown, you might say, of the anointing. But Peter says, Jesus, it's you. You are the Christ. You are our hope. You are our hero. Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. I don't want you guys talking about this because y'all still don't really get it. And so Jesus tells his disciples to shush. And he began to teach them at the, that the Son of Man... So verse 31, here's where we have the fulcrum point, the hinge, the pivot. Now we're going to begin driving to the very end of Mark's gospel. Here's the great divide. Mark 8, 31. Now we're going to kick towards the end of his book. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Whoa, this just got serious. Eight chapters telling us how good this Jesus is, what he's like, what he says, what he thinks, how he feels about people, the way he encounters the down and out, the lepers, the Gentiles, the widows, the demon-possessed. And now he's just said, hey, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and the religious structures are going to conspire, and they're going to kill me, and the Son of Man must rise again. Now, three times in Mark's gospel, here in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, once in chapter 10, Jesus will do the same teaching. Three times he'll say, the Son of Man must be delivered up. He'll be betrayed. He will be killed. He'll be dead. He'll be buried. He'll rise again. And all three times the disciples fumble the ball in their own end zone, we might say. All three times they make a horrible mess of things. Watch this, verse 32. And he said this plainly. Why does Mark tell us that? Not a parable, not a riddle, not a mystery, not, not smoggy or foggy. He says it as plainly as he can. Look, guys, 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 look here. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. The structures of leadership are going to take me, betray me, torture me. I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried because I'll have been dead, and then I'll raise again. I think what he's trying to say is, he says it to them plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, right there, there's a problem. You don't confess Jesus is the Christ, the triple crown, prophet, priest, and king. And then you try to correct him. Like, oh, no, you don't. Not on my watch. No way. You are our hope. You are our hero. Messiahs can't die. Don't you know, Jesus? Don't you know? Messiahs don't die. That's like a general saying, my mission is to suffer an utter defeat and be completely slaughtered and annihilated. That's a bad general. It's like a mother saying, my job is to have absolutely no children. Too late. You do. So he's like, you, you, you can't say that you're going to go suffer and die. and be like He didn't hear the resurrected part. All he heard was, wait a minute. You're our hope and our hero, and you're saying you're going to, far be it. Not on our watch, Jesus. No way. Mm. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He rebukes Jesus. Jesus says, no, 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 this is too important. I can't let them or anybody else hear this. He rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Incidentally, interestingly, that is the exact same in, uh, 
the same command, the same sentence that Jesus gives at the end of his temptation in the wilderness in Luke 4 and Matthew 4 and Mark 1. Get behind me, Satan. What was the temptation of Satan? You can be the king now. You can be the greatest king this world's ever known. You can do some really, really good stuff really soon. And Jesus says, no, I will not settle for that. I have way bigger plans, way grander, eternal kingdom things in mind. And Peter, you're settling for the immediate, the here and the now, just like Satan's trying to do. I will not have this, and I don't want the disciples to be infected either. He rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And there, right there, that's the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. That's it right there. Setting your minds on the things of man, not on the things of God. What did the Pharisees want? They wanted to be vindicated. They wanted to be affirmed, justified in what they were doing, that they were earning righteousness in God's sight. Jesus says, I'm not here for that. Herod, Antipas, who had killed John the Baptist, he wanted to be a king and he wanted God, whatever God meant, to, to esteem him, to raise him up, to have a kingdom on the earth here and now until he was dead. That's all he cared about. This leaven is settling. It's, it's this idea of, I want God in Christ to merely accessorize me, to amplify my agenda. And Jesus says, beware of that leaven, because once it gets into the bread, it goes everywhere. Remember the loaf of bread that he opened up? Imagine trying to open up that loaf of bread and pull out all the leaven. You can't, so don't let it get started. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him, up in Caesarea Philippi, who probably are some of them are engaging in disgusting lewd acts all around the parades of the pan worship. He calls them, if anyone, and he says to his disciples in the crowd, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. This has perplexed people for a long time. What exactly does Jesus mean? Do you have to go get two four-by-four posts, nail them together and carry it around and then go and climb up and get on it? No, of course not. The, the central thrust of this section when Jesus says, let me explain, I am the Christ. You must deny yourself. does not mean to pretend that you don't exist. No, that's silly. That doesn't make any sense at all. It is to, to lay aside your own agenda, to instead adopt and adapt his agenda, his program, his purpose, his mission. Jesus will not be proud of you when he shows up and you go, look, I was working really hard. I just needed you to give me a boost and a nudge. No, no, no. Jesus says, I will not be proud of you if I show up and you go, I was trying to build myself a kingdom. I was trying to build myself an empire. All I needed was a boost and a nudge. Jesus says, I will not be proud of that. I'll be ashamed of it. But if you say, I am all in on your kingdom, on your fame, on your renown, then you will be free. So deny your own agenda, your own mission, your own purpose. Lay that aside, your own self-reliance, your own self-sovereignty. Lay it aside and understand that I am the Christ. So what do we take away from all this lengthy chapter 8? 
a couple implications. Number one goes like this. Han Solo. These effects aren't very special. For some of you, you're Han Solo. You've been freed from the that which, which suspends you, but you can't see. You've been set free, but you still can't see. You're walking around, and you're still not seeing how this works, and you think, I've been converted. I've been set free, but you're still not seeing. Jesus does these two amazing miracles You remember the end of chapter seven? He puts his fingers in the guy's ear and touches his tongue and he can hear. Then a little bit later on, he goes to the Eastern shore and he gives a a man sight. Hearing, you don't hear. Seeing, you don't see. But Jesus is going to restore sight and sound. Now, I see this all the time, even in the church. Let me just give you two quick examples. Sometimes I engage or I meet Christians and man, they get justification. They totally get saved by grace. God did a thing I didn't deserve. I am free, free at last. I am free. I can do whatever I want. I am free. Woo, grace. But they have no concept of sanctification. No concept of actually gazing at the glory of Jesus and ever increasingly being transformed into the person of Jesus. They have no concept of that. So they're, they're seeing, but they're not really seeing. On the flip side, I know people who are very, very focused and fastidious about sanctification. They're trying so hard to be better, working at it all the time, and they're miserable because they've forgotten about justification. They've forgotten that all this is by grace and that God's going to do the work if you just stare at Jesus. He's going to do the work. It's by grace. See, people who are seeing but not seeing on both sides of that coin. Or perhaps this. I know a lot of people who are intellectually Man, they have attention to doctrine. They have this attention, and they have all the right answers, and they are going to win Bible Jeopardy every time you have them over. So just know that. But there's no affection. And so there's no heart. There's no power. There's no drive. There's no engine. They know a bunch of stuff, but they're not actually in love with Jesus. On the same time, I know a lot of people, man, they love them some Jesus, brah. 
What do you love about him? Oh, yeah, he's just like, awesome, man. Avocados. What? They have no idea anything about him, so they have all this heart's affection, but no attention. They're seeing, but they're not seeing. So I want you to keep that image. Are you a Han Solo Christian? And the answer is yes. You don't get fractions either. And so when that comes to mind, it happens on a daily basis, it happens on an hourly basis, oh wait, I'm free but I'm not seeing. And you just pray, help me to see, help me to hear. Second point, equally simple, it goes like this, surrender, surrender. That's what Jesus means when he says lay aside, deny yourself, wave the white flag. I know that's not a popular flag to wave, we're Americans, we don't do that. Your passport is gold. You are citizens of another kingdom and you surrender daily, hourly, moment by moment and you lay aside your own agenda and you don't eat the leavened sandwich of the Pharisees and Herod. You lay it aside. God, your plan, your purpose. I will see those other people that I typically disdain. That's why the disciples didn't want Jesus to feed the 4,000 on the eastern shore. They're Gentiles. They're not of us. I can just about promise you in East Texas in 2022, there are people on the east side of your lake. There are. They may be in another cubicle in your office. They may be across the street in your home. They may be in a different section in this room. Do you want your Jesus for them? Surrender. It's not about your agenda, your ambition. It's not about your program. Surrender. See, Jesus is the Christ. Now I have good news. You and I cannot remove the leaven that has infected and has expanded in all of us. But this is the kind of king, this is the kind of Lord, this is the kind of savior, this is the kind of big brother that our Jesus is. Jesus removes the leaven. Did you see it? when he heals the deaf guy, when he heals the blind guy, I'm the one, supernaturally, I can pull all of the Kool-Aid out of the Kool-Aid. I'm the one, Jesus says, no other way. Look at me, love me, trust me, follow me, and I will remove that leaven. And just as Han Solo, you will see again. The more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. And now this Christ, Jesus is the Christ. He will now push to what he must accomplish. I invite you to believe. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that we would believe, that we would not just say that we do, but we would understand fully, that we would agree fully, and that we would trust fully. Even so, Lord, would you help our unbelief? Would you, by your power, by your goodness, by your grace, remove the leaven that darkens and dims. Would you help us to believe? Father, if there's anyone here this morning that is not persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, not just great, but is the Son of the living God who takes away the sin of the world and who offers us eternal life now. If they are not persuaded, would you persuade them by your Spirit through your Word among your people? For the rest of us, Father, would you continually free us from not seeing, from not hearing, from not understanding? And pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.